Today's episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free trial at www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co slash PMC. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. Thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe to our recently launched Substack, the Planet Microcap Newsletter, for free at microcapnewsletter.substack.com. I'll be sharing all recent podcast episodes from Planet Microcap and Due Diligence. Plus, every Sunday, I put out our weekly microcap wrap to show how the microcap space is performed each week and compared to the broader markets based on data from the Microcap Review Index. So again, to subscribe, please go to microcapnewsletter.substack.com. Now, for this episode of the Planet Microcap Podcast, I spoke with Carter Johnson, founder of MCJ Capital Partners. We were introduced by Adam Mead, recent guest on the show, whom he dubbed his microcap guy. So uh, shout out to Adam and, and thank you. Uh, I've done a few interviews over the years with microcap management teams claiming that they're holding companies, the next Berkshire or a mini Berkshire, you know, the goal being uh, to build the next multi-billion dollar conglomerate. I say this uh, slightly in jest uh, because uh, I'm not sure how many of those companies are still around. However, it, it inspired my conversation with Carter today because he focuses on finding quality conglomerates, but also serial acquirers as a whole. So thank you again for tuning in to episode 235 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with Carter Johnson. This episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSets. You can find them at streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G dot co backslash PMC. Stream is an expert interview transcript library that is starting to become an integral part to investors' research process. They have a number of interviews on a wide variety of companies, including TMT, consumers, industrials, real estate, and more. Stream provides over 300 expert interviews per week, and 70% of their experts are found exclusively on Stream. Stream is unlike any other transcript libraries. Stream integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Stream's community of experts and thought leaders partner with Stream to build their professional brands and expand their industry influence. Right now, there are approximately 8,500 plus call transcripts available. For more information, please visit www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co backslash PMC. Welcome back, everyone, to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And joining me today 
is Carter Johnson. He is the founder of MCJ Capital Partners. Carter, thanks for joining me today. How are you doing, man? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Bobby. It's great to have you on. So we were actually introduced by uh, Adam Mead. You, uh, you know, when I had Adam on, you know, we're microcap show. He's like, oh, let me, let me get you my microcap guy. <laughs> and, uh, and he was talking about you. So I was, I was really stoked that we were able to connect and, and get you on here. And, you know, I wanted to learn, learn a little bit more about your investing philosophy and background and all that jazz. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. And Adam's a great guy. I always tease him. He should come over to uh, more of the micro cap world. So uh, I'm glad. I'm really glad to hear that he's uh, he's doing a little bit more of that stuff. So good to hear. I, absolutely. I, I just heard a great um, it, it, like somebody who wasn't in micro caps and they were trying to describe micro caps back to me using an analogy. And they were like, you know, is it like is investing in micro caps kind of like having a seat at the chef's table? And I was like, wow, yeah, like that's. You know, so it's it's interesting when some other pros and like quality investors you don't know don't have any kind of exposure to microcaps just yet because it's like it's almost like they're not eating at the chef's table where all yeah. these other grades are at. So it's it's funny you say that because it's always like baffled me why in higher education, you know, finance is taught and they'll use these like case studies of these huge, elaborate, complex businesses. And I'm like, man, the, you know, the financial acronym would just, I feel like skyrocket if you broke it down and used like micro caps or smaller companies just to explain concepts and, and walk through financial statements and, and go over capital structures and things like that. Um, because it is, you get, you get such a better view of those like fundamentals and, and the ingredients uh, to uh, tease out that, that chef analogy even more. And, and across the board, you know, you're not just, not just your, you know, this is what a good balance sheet looks like. It's like, it's important yeah. to also understand like, what does a shit balance sheet look like? Yeah. That's a great point. So it's, it's fun looking at, at companies um, smaller in size for sure. hundred oh, percent. So let's get your background, man. Where, where did your passion for investing begin? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, like, I guess I can kind of walk you through the, the traditional side of it and then the, the non-traditional. Um, like a lot of folks in this business, you know, I, I uh, for whatever reason, I stumbled across it at an early age, just had a genuine passion in markets and finance and business. Um, so I was one of those guys who was, uh, you know, investing in companies at a, at a pretty young age and just following companies, not really knowing anything in terms of what I was doing, but just had that genuine interest and curiosity um, which looking back, it's a little odd because no one in my family can tell you the difference between a stock or a bond. So I was just that weird kid on the beach, like <laughs> reading Forbes and whatever book I, uh, stumbled across in uh, Barnes and Nobles. Um, but yeah, went to school to study finance, uh, from there, that's where I guess my, my background takes a little bit of a non-traditional turn. Um, I started a company with a buddy of mine when I was in school and, uh, did that, for a few years after we graduated and we eventually sold it. But that was, uh, that was really where I cut my teeth on business. Um, that was where I got a feel for, you know, what's behind the numbers, so to speak, uh, which was, it was, it was a great experience for me personally, because uh, it really gave a lot of life and meaning to things like working capital and uh, realizing like, you know, depreciation is a real expense. Like when a truck breaks down, that's, <laughs> you're seeing depreciation, you know? What was uh, the, what was the business? Yeah, so it was a moving company. Uh, we operated in the tri-state area of Kentucky, Indiana, Ohio. Um, so, you know, just like a blue collar business that was, it was, it was a great experience. Like it was. Um, I wish, I yeah. wish you were still around. I need one right now. 
What's that? I need one right now. We're about to yeah. move in a couple of weeks. Yeah, so. you're out in uh, Utah, right? I don't think they're. I don't <laughs> no, think no, they're I'm there. in I'm in LA. So oh, yeah. Right. yeah. Right. <laughs> so, so we got a truck out here, man. Let me know. Yeah. Uh, give me yeah, give me a deal. Out. Yeah. So, but anyways, after I sold that, I moved out to Colorado. Um, I knew I wanted to get back more towards um, the investment side of things, and um, really, there's a couple things I really wanted to accomplish after I sold the business. I really wanted to improve my accounting acronym and really just like sharpen that side of my game. Um, and then I also really wanted to, to understand more of the valuation process and how that unfolds over different cycles and stuff. Uh, so I like to joke in my you know late twenties um, and into my thirties, I had this like business walkabout where I had this like freedom to to dive in and, and really just follow any curiosity I had in terms of like industry or business concepts um, whatever it was there. And, uh, that was, that was really fun. I did a lot of, uh, formal valuation work, a lot of forensic accounting stuff. Um, again, just kind of sharpening that, that acronym. And, uh, then let's see around 2019, um, a buddy of mine who was a fund manager, you know, he kept getting on me like, Hey, when are you going to make a move and really formalize this that you're going after, um, so I put together MCJ Capital Partners and, and um, really, you know, started uh, Capital Hit Accounts. It was, it was like the first week in February of 2020, which was, uh, <laughs> talk about great timing. Um, that was kind of hilarious. But uh, yeah, Capital came in and um, really just started MCJ Capital Partners for myself and a few family friends. And um, that's where I'm at now, just a small shop. Uh, having fun analyzing uh, small companies. I was going to say, so how did you get to smaller companies? Yeah, well, it's, I think for me, it was a natural kind of transition. Um, you know, when you're looking at, so I did a lot of formal valuation work in private markets. And when you're looking at, you know, valuations in private markets, if you're transitioning over to public equities and, you know, you're looking at businesses that are a few hundred million in market cap, I mean, it's not, it's, it's, I feel like so many people come from the public side where they're looking at these huge, huge businesses like your Apples or your Googles. And then they look at small companies and they're like, whoa, I wouldn't touch that. Like there's, you know, it's so small. If you come from the private world, it's like you're looking at these companies and you're really comfortable with the size and the challenges and kind of where they are in their own story, so to speak. So for me, I was looking at a lot of um, private companies actually making a run to potentially acquire um, a private company and go more of a holding company structure. Um, but I kept, I kept looking at deals and I would find stuff that was better uh, that was, you know, listed on the OTC or, or just smaller companies out there. Um, and then I just kept seeing these opportunity sets and I was like, man, it just, to me, it makes a lot more sense to uh, go after these good companies that already have um, listed securities in some sort or another. Um, it just, it made a lot of sense to me. So yeah, that's kind of how I stumbled into, into the micro cap world, if you will. Absolutely. So, I mean, all right, you got to take me back to that time. I mean, did you already have capital committed before Feb 2020 or were you, were you actively marketing? Like, cause that's, that's, yeah. that's wild, man. Like start basically starting your fund, you know, yeah. at that time, which hey, in hindsight, well, I'm not being that bad of timing. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't, um, it, it was more, yeah, it was more like, okay, hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to create the solution that I want. 
in terms of how I want my capital and my family's capital invested. Um, and then if I find other investors, great. If not, so be it. I'm still creating the solution that I want as a wealth creation be, uh, vehicle going forth. Um, and then I had a few friends and family who, who were always asking me like, Hey, what are you working on? I'd like to, I'd like to invest. So um, that part was a little bit easier. And again, I had a buddy who was a fund manager who was, um, he was, you know, the first capital outside of my own. And um, it, it was one of those where uh, my wife was on board as well. And um, it wasn't like I was looking to launch something of a certain size with a certain amount of overhead. So I had to go out and fundraise. Uh, it was very much just like, hey, I'm creating a lean solution uh, vehicle for how I wanted my own capital invested. So I'd like to take a quick second to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Quarter. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world, straight from your pocket for no cost. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. The first step on this journey is to let you, the user, interact with the company's content while you're listening. Visit your app store of choice and try it out today by searching for Quarter, and that's Q-U-A-R-T-R. Now back to the show. All right, so let's talk philosophy, man. So, I mean, you kind of got yeah. into it a little bit there, and you know, obviously, there's the bias towards a smaller, I mean, micro caps or just or just small cap and below. Definitely favor small uh, companies. Okay. Well, you know, I do. So it's it's interesting philosophy style. You know, however you want to kind of talk about that. Um, I wouldn't classify myself as like a hardcore growth guy or a hardcore value guy. Like if you look at our portfolio. We have stuff that meets both perimeters, you know, um, something that you would find with with a growth oriented portfolio and something you would find with like a true a true value oriented portfolio. Um, so I don't I don't really classify myself in one of those buckets. At the end of the day, I just I just really like good companies and um, I definitely favor smaller companies. So small micro cap, things of that nature. That's my preference. Um, I think there's a lot of components um, and dynamics of investing in small companies that really can, can set up long runs for success, especially if you get in the right type of model, um, one that has the components to really just, you know, compound internally, obviously everybody's looking for something like that, but, um, then you have all these, you know, obvious constraints that, um, that come into play where if you're, if you're fishing in these small ponds for smaller companies, um, and if you're, you're willing to go even international, so out, outside of the U.S., uh, you really, you know, you're not having to necessarily compete against the Buffets, the Ackmans, the, the Icons, things of that nature. So um, just your opportunity sets. There's, there's just a lot more stuff there, um, as well as just like lack of coverage from the sell side. So that's, that's all. Those are like interesting dynamics. Um, I read a book. I think it was Brian Bear's who wrote it, small cap advantage. Um, you know, I read that a few years ago and to me, it just made so much sense what he articulated in that, in that book. I don't know. Have you read that book at all by chance? I, I haven't read that. I've heard of it, but I haven't read that one yet. Oh, I've seen Brian, I've seen Brian Bear speak though many times. And, like, oh, he's such a smart guy. Yeah. Super sharp. And, um, yeah, what he, what he lays out in that book. Uh, and I think he, I think he wrote it 10 plus years ago, but it still holds true. 
um, today. And he, he explains a lot of those dynamics that, um, that come into play with small companies. And it's, it's really, uh, it's just an interesting place to, uh, to fish. And especially if you have, you know, if you don't have the, uh, the problem, I'll say that with air quotes of, uh, managing a billion plus or something, <laughs> it's a great place to look for, for ideal opportunity sets. So let me, let me go back to something that I brought up at the beginning. You know, yeah. we were introduced by Adam. You were kind of a small micro cap guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, what in, in talking with folks that may not understand the opportunities of small micro caps, and listen, mm-hmm. I'm not trying to be too like, you know, fly the flag, you know, obviously, you know, sure. you gotta be, there's, there's a lot of crap. There's, yeah. you know, okay. All the, all the, all the, all the normal stuff. Yeah. What? Or keep going, but um, we can jump into that a little bit. Why? I, we'll keep going with what you're saying though. Okay. All right. Well, I was just saying like when you were having those conversations with folks, you know, like, Hey, this is kind of the strategy. This is the bias that we're going towards. You know, what's some of the pushback that you get, you know, what are some of the, that those frequently asked questions and like small micro caps, like, why can't you just like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting, especially depending on who you're having that conversation with. I find international investors. So um, folks I talk with over in Europe and Australia and stuff, they're a lot more like receptive to, oh yeah, small companies, you know, market cap less than hundred million. It, it's not like you have to, to go over the merits of that one way or another. Um, they just kind of, they don't skip a beat. They want to get right into the conversation about the company, what they do, the industry dynamics. Um, here in the States, I feel like a lot of times you bring up small micro cap companies and you get real like, whoa, that's a, uh, you know, it's kind of the wild, wild west and rightfully so, right? Like there is a lot of junk out there um, in the in the small cap space. And um, I think that's what makes it so great. It's, it's a deterrent to so many professional investors. Um, so there are just a ton of rocks to turn over um, and there's not nearly as much institutional coverage and, and, and uh, investment that's underwriting those, those companies. So for smaller capital bases, you know, you can go in there, you can, you can actually do the work of turning over those rocks and, and effectively making an efficient market in the sense by, by finding an opportunity set that, that others are missing. So um, it's a really interesting dynamic. The other thing I like about it, you know, we live in this world where index funds are rightfully, you know, all the rage. And yet, if you look at micro caps and small caps, um, a lot of times the, the dimensions of like liquidity and, and whatnot, it prevents a lot of these companies from ever being um, eligible for these ETFs. And Brian Barris, he does a phenomenal job of, of explaining this component with ETFs where you have this weird space with, with small cap ETFs where, um, you know, they're, they're outlined based off a of market cap size. And then you essentially have these good small companies that are growing, 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 and then they'll graduate up out of that class. And that ETF that's supposed to be at this passive vehicle, it essentially dumps, dumps that winner, right? But then simultaneously, you have these, these awful dying companies that were a large cap. Now they're coming through mid cap level and now they're in the small cap level. And then the ETF is now including those size because they're a dying business and and uh, you know, coming in range there. So essentially with passive solutions with these smaller companies, you have them selling away the best companies and, and doubling down on these dying worst ones. Um, and don't get me wrong, you can still do you know 
passive type of investing, uh, not investment advice or anything. But uh, there's there's a lot of advantages to go out and actively discovering these on your own versus versus doing um, you know just a passive index fund. It's so it's so interesting you say that because you know we we manage you know we have a, our own index that we just launched uh, earlier this year called the Microcap Review Index, and we've just did our Q3 reconstitution. And I mean, well, listen, all microcaps got absolutely killed, but it's, but it's, but it's really interesting seeing um, some of the names that came through for Q3, you know, um, a lot of fallen angels, a lot of, a lot of names that I, I was like, oh, wow. You know, I wouldn't have, I still wouldn't have expected despite almost everyone taking a haircut in the first half of 2022. So it's interesting that you say that, you know, and then of course, you know, you see your winner you see your winners, you know, the ones that are performing great, like, Oh, they, they got to go, you know, yeah. they're, they're beyond 300 million. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so it's an interesting. Dynamic. What it is. Um, and then kind of, I don't know if I'm changing the subject too much, but a big thing of what I focus on. So I really like small companies. Um, I like them for the dynamics that we're talking about. And then I spend a lot of time on serial acquires. So again, it's another area and kind of edge of the market where, most investors just put their hands up and they're like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to touch that stuff, <laughs> you know, and there's all these deterrents. And I think when you layer small cap companies and a serial acquired component to it, man, there's just, there's a lot of fun stuff. Um, there's a lot of, you know, just crap as well, but uh, a lot of fun stuff. If you're, if you're willing to turn over the rocks and put in the work. For sure. All right. Let's talk, let's dig in a little bit. You know, you mentioned that you like kind of these serial acquirers. Tell us a little bit more about what some of your, what that ideal investment looks like for you. Yeah. So serial acquirers, um, they're really fascinating to me. Um, it's, it's actually, so I met Adam years ago at a Berkshire Hathaway uh, meeting and um, it's, I promise I'll, I'll get full story on why I gravitate towards serial acquirers, but just to kind of give you a, a background, um, I've always found conglomerates to be a fascinating business model. I remember reading about them as a teenager and just thinking, you know, wow, this is this is really interesting. This whole idea that you could have a business that encompasses multiple verticals and essentially smooth out results over an economic cycle. So, I really, um, I really found conglomerates interesting and. And how I stumbled across Buffett and Berkshire was it was actually probably like a little bit inverse of what I think most people do. Um, I studied first Berkshire because I was interested in it from a conglomerate perspective. And then I stumbled into Buffett and I was like, wow, this guy, he is, you know, very impressive and, and the humility and everything else. Um, so with serial acquires, it's it's if you think about your traditional company, um, a lot of times with your traditional company, you have, uh, it's, it's pretty hard to consistently redeploy capital at high rates of return. Um, it's one of those where uh, there's only so much in terms of deploying uh, capital organically that, that can be done in a way where you, you hold those returns and, and keep reinvesting in the business at a high rate. Um, and what you usually see with traditional businesses is you have these opportunity sets. Um, management is looking to reinvest. They're, they're looking to do things, but it's almost this, this race towards the bottom in terms of finding projects that ha- have high rates of returns. Um, so eventually with your traditional business model, a lot of times you have to worry about either the business becoming obsolete or growth just fully maturing and 
you know, running at a GDP equivalent type of growth at best. Uh, if you look at serial acquires, what, what's fascinating, and they're not all like this by any means, but serial acquires usually have this structural component where they're saying, hey, we're going to dominate a niche market, and then we're going to take the capital that's spinning off of that and find these other niche markets to reinvest in and, and grow the business that way. And to me, that makes just a lot of intuitive sense. It's, it's very much like investing at a portfolio level in a way. So I think you asked like, you know, what's, what's ideal? What do, what do I look for? Um, I love to find a, a small company that, that has that structural and cultural dynamic that allows it to exist as a serial acquirer. And they're not doing these Hail Mary, make or break, all or nothing type of acquisitions. They're going out and systematically acquiring small little bolt-ons or uh, businesses, you know, of similar size to, to systematically keep growing the business year over year. Um, and when you find those types of companies, those that are already small in size, so they don't necessarily yet, yet have that institutional coverage. Um, and then they're also doing some sort of serial acquire type of strategy. You know, a lot of times there's very little, very little coverage on those. Uh, they're, they're a little bit harder to, to um, analyze but they've got great opportunity sets for longer runways to just keep systematically redeploying capital and, and, and compounding those earnings over the long run. So that's a long-winded answer to your, your question, but that's a, that's a big reason why I look for those two dynamics of small companies and serial acquirers. Gotcha. So, I mean, what would you say then for you is the big difference between a serial acquirer and let's say, you know, that classic roll-up strategy? Yeah. So there, there are all sorts of uh, serial acquirer strategies and, and types. Um, I mean, you have the platforms, you have the roll-ups, you have your traditional conglomerates, you have like more of a holding company type of uh, structure. So, you know, that's one of the big things that, that I do when uh, I come across a new serial acquirer is, is really start dissecting what type of serial acquirer it is. Um, you know, you'll have bolt-ons that are specifically focused on um, just kind of doing your your same type of business over and over. So they're really good at under, understanding industry dynamics and understanding where they can, they can pick up market share and where they can um, really go out and make a dent in terms of acquisitions. And then you'll have other serial acquirers who have a strategy where they're acquiring across all sorts, all, all sorts of verticals. And um, it's, you know, there's different, different types of serial acquirers require different types of analysis an understanding of, of what's going on and what's unfolding. Uh, but that's what makes it really interesting. and makes it a lot of fun. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a really cool model to, to dig into. And it's, I find it, Bobby, it's, it's very similar to, if you look at just like small micro cap companies, there's a lot that are not worth of, you know, not worth the attention. They're, they're just absolute junk. Um, and there's, there's a lot of that with acquirers out there too. They've kind of gotten a uh, a bad name in terms of main street uh, main street like investment circles, just because a lot of them are uh, destroying shareholder capital in the sense when they do these acquisitions. But then you have these other sets of serial acquirers who really get what they're doing, um, and they really understand what levers to pull and how to go out and deploy capital at those high rates of returns. And then build the systems and the culture that that keeps that 
moving forth um, and pushing it down within the organization to where it's just kind of the, uh, the rally cry throughout the organization. For so. sure. Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, I think it also gets a bad rap because I mean, I, you know, I do a ton of interviews with CEOs and, mm-hmm. you know, especially when I come across a conglomerate or, you know, the role of strategy or yeah. something on the serial acquire side, you know, when they say, Oh yeah, we got a Berkshire model, you know, it's going to be kind of like a Berkshire right. model. Right. Like, Oh, sick. Okay. I mean, like, right. Everybody's cool. Be right. <laughs> yeah. cool. Like, yeah. great. You know, I'm, I'm sure, you know, good yeah. luck. <laughs> yeah, you it's, know, yeah. It's it's fascinating there. Um, yeah, just just because you're you're doing acquisitions, I don't think it puts you anywhere near a, a Berkshire type of model by any no. means. Um, but I, I think you also you see um, you see components of management who who have studied Berkshire and sure. they're trying to implement it, um, or they figured out which we appreciate. Right, right. Or, or maybe they figured out something that took Berkshire and uh, Buffett years to figure out. And, you know, they're, they're building off of that. Um, yeah, I say that not to poo-poo the ones that are trying. Because, hey, it's right, good to have yeah. big lofty goals. I appreciate that. But, I mean, more often than not. You know, yeah, yeah. And, right. and that's, again, that's, that's why there's, I think, such a great opportunity set in there. Because it is being able to, to dig through and, and sort through and figure out which ones are and, and which ones aren't. Um, and it's, um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And I've always, again, I've kind of gravitated towards that type of model. So for me, it's, it's fun, not just to study like a Berkshire, but like, I'm a huge fan of, of Henry Singleton and Teledyne and understanding like the back end systems that allowed him to go out and do 187 acquisitions. I think it was by the end of his career and how, you know, that worked in his model, but it wouldn't necessarily work for a Berkshire or, um, you know, a Constellation software or something like that. So, um, yeah, it's fun dissecting them and figuring out, you know, who's doing what, what way. Um, and, uh, yeah, just, all right. just all that in. full disclosure. I have to ask, Ber- are, you, are you shareholder in Berkshire or a Constellation? Uh, yes. Thanks for bringing that up. Uh, yes. So Constellation, yes. Um, Berkshire a little bit in a uh, personal account. Um, and then no tell that. So even gotcha. though Henry Singleton isn't there anymore, that's a little good business. So no, no worries. <laughs> hey, and, and look, I, I, I want to get into some, some anecdotal experience, you know, like for yeah. you, you know, I, and this isn't, you know, to hear to pitch your favorite idea or anything like, sure. or, but maybe using something that's in the portfolio or, or not, yeah. that gives like that perfect example for you, what that ideal serial acquirer looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're all different. Um, I can give you one that's kind of, uh, it'll be relevant to your audience and stuff because it's a micro cap. And then, um, yeah, full disclosure, we own it. Um, and, and accounts I manage, um, we own it there as well. Uh, Creighton's out of the UK. It's a company that I absolutely love. Um, and, uh, hopefully eventually I'm a Mormon at a meetup onto it. Um, but Creighton's they're in the, um, the toiletries business. So they make a lot of like skin and care and, and beauty products and things of that nature. And um, if you look at Cradence, it has everything I like to see in both a small company as well as a serial acquirer. Uh, and as we record this, they just reported their, their, uh, their second half, um, uh, which was, it wasn't a great reporting period because a lot of the, their input cost with what's going on with energy over in the UK, but 
it's still, it's, um, I think it's a phenomenal business that has all those components you look for. Um, so it's, it's a platform of sorts and it operates in the space that it's, it's highly fragmented. There's all these, these, uh, you know, toiletry and, and beauty products that are small in size as well. And so Creighton's is of this Goldilocks size where um, they're starting to have economies of scale kick in. They know what they're doing. They've got distribution cells built up so they can go out and they can acquire these brands, bring them in house um, and really under their discretion, they can expand those product lines while also plugging them into their sales and distribution. Um, and then all while doing that, you know, it's a credit to their actual um, equity because they're going out and acquiring these things at a multiple that that is significant, uh, significantly less than um, what they where they trade. So it's a pretty cool dynamic where it's a small company that has just great management. Um, they're doing all the right things as a small company, um, you know, can do. But then they also have this acquisition component. And um, what I like, and sorry, Bobby, I feel like I'm monopolizing the conversation here. So <laughs> let me know if you want me to take a breath so you can chime in. I'm, I'm interviewing you, man. That's all. Yeah, point. yeah. I, I get super excited when I talk about this stuff. <laughs> so, go, man. It's yeah, all good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those, you know, I, when I'm looking at small companies, I love to, um, I love to go in. I love to, to take apart the business and understand everything from its, you know, products and service lines, uh, to its management, to what like new hires they're bringing on board and what, you know, backgrounds those new hires have. Um, and Creighton's is one of those fun ones where, uh, following the company for a few years, being able to see them, you know, invest in the actual infrastructure of the business and get capacity at a point where it made sense to then bring on acquisitions and then to, you know, start actually upping their talent and, and recruiting executives um, that had different levels of specialties in different markets that they want to expand to. Um, and then seeing them, you know, start doing more acquisitions and then now um, actually having an individual whose focus is purely on acquisitions. So the executive team can, you know, go back uh, more towards management of, of the core company versus just deal sourcing. Um, it's, it's, really cool just to see that evolution that cycle of that business and i think that's one of the um the fun parts of small companies is is getting that front row seat to to seeing how those things unfold absolutely so i want to i want to ask a you know another little story time and i appreciate you giving that that example with creighton's there you know but what would you say was an investing experience that changed your career the most i really maybe more specifically set you on this path of like Serial acquires. This is what I want to look for. Yeah, I mean, it, it would have to be Constellation Software. I don't. I don't know how it would. Um, Constellation was one of those weird companies I stumbled across. Um, I want to say like ten years ago, and um, again, it was actually just studying conglomerates and just I call it tracing the bank, just like looking at at uh, similar companies with similar type of models and. Uh, coming across Constellation software, that was, so studying Singleton and what, what he built at Teledyne, I really was fascinated by this model and this idea that you could keep basically the size of acquisitions low, which generally means that you're acquiring companies, you know, 
at, at uh, a lower multiple at a, at a lower valuation. So you get higher returns on capital. And um, the problem with that is, you know, it makes sense if you have 10 businesses and all else equal, you go out, you acquire one, you've, you've, um, you've grown that footprint 10%, right? But if you go out and you're at hundred businesses and you acquire just one, you've only like moved the needle 1%. Um, so what I'm getting at is I was, I was fascinated by this model that Henry Singleton was able to implement where he was systematically able to go out and keep acquiring small companies, companies of a smaller size. And, um, you know, that's usually the exception of the rule um, as opposed to the norm. Um, so, so looking at that and, and trying to understand it and then coming across Constellation software to actually see it in real time and then to follow that over the years and see it unfold. Um, obviously, Constellation is, you know, it is the hallmark shining star of, of serial acquirers. I don't know if anyone will ever do it better than what Mark Leonard and, and his team have done there. But um, just watching that unfold and trying to understand the architecture behind their structure to me that's been a real eye-opener to what can happen if if all those components are there nice that's a really good example i've been wanting to get constellations i mean it's probably impossible but you know we'd love to we'd love to do an interview with mark at some point on a oh man yeah it's probably never that'll never happen but it's i think that's one of the you know the mystique and being camera shy if you i know but um, there's a few. There's him. There's uh, um, Monsters Energy. We'd love to do on uh, on Compounders. Um, yeah. You know, some some of those some of those that just don't do anything, but just like you know, uh, obviously <laughs> expel at some point. That'd be I, cool. I find too those stories like so fascinating. Like yeah, well, Mark Leonard with what the business was originally capitalized at. This whole idea that he really just needed to create a liquidity event for for his. Uh, private equity backers and stuff like that. Like to me, I, um, that's one of the things I enjoy is learning about the history of, of the company and the industry that they're in and, and really understanding why even, you know, are there shares that are listed that we can, that we can acquire. Um, and a lot of times it's some weird story like that, right? Like there's some liquidity event they needed that um, just happened to be at that point in time. Um, so it's yeah. fun. No, absolutely. So I, you know, we've talked about what the, some of the ideal investment looks like in yeah. serial acquires. Um, you know, some of your favorites that got you excited about it that you like to study to see to make sure that you know maybe other potential investments have some of those qualities. Well, let's do the opposite. You know, what what would you say are some of those red flags that are immediately like hell no, <laughs> trash bin junk? You know, that's what, a great question. That's a great question. Uh, I would say, you know, obviously you find more of those than the other types, the exception to the rule. Um, yeah, one, I mean, one of the big things um, that's just, it, it, one thing I really don't like is the make or break acquisitions. So usually you see that in a business where they have a dying or a slow growth type of uh, core business. And management has to figure out how to make, make the company grow or get it back on track, right? Um, so you really have two things happening there. You're, you're 
basically looking at a company that's betting on a successful pivot into a market they know nothing about. And then also you're having management bet on a skill set that they haven't really honed in. So they're, they're looking to actually complete acquisition and it's not something they're versed in or anything of that nature. Um, and then on top of that, they're going after bigger companies that are going to cost a lot more, have a lot lower returns. Um, so, you know, that's, you wouldn't necessarily call them a serial acquirer at that point. Um, you would just, you know, they're looking to complete acquisition. That's kind of, if you're looking at companies and, and you see the words acquisitions, that's like one of the big red flags that I look for. Uh, the other thing, especially more of the serial acquirers. So these are, these are uh, companies that have gone out and they're, they're completing successful acquisitions. Um, one of the red flags I look at uh, is, kind of the, the empire building mentality. So you'll just see deals that, that don't make sense either from a valuation perspective or how they plan to um, integrate the company. Um, I really, really favor businesses that operate with a decentralized model. So they're pushing that um, those responsibilities down to the business unit level keeping um, that, that management uh, in place that, that understands that those niche dynamics that made the business successful in general. Um, so a lot of times, you know, seeing acquisitions that are completed and there's no real strategy outside of empire building or getting some sort of um, credit bump on the, the actual valuation between the, the stock and the acquired company um, on those earnings. That's, that's another red flag that's, that I'm, you know, usually like, ah, not that interested in. Um, and then I'd say this isn't necessarily a red flag for, for others, but for me, um, it, it has to be in a space that I can understand. You know, there's, there's a lot of businesses out there that um, I just, I can't figure out what in the world they're doing. I, I don't really understand the industry dynamics. Um, so it's very hard for me to, understand the strategy that they're putting forth, even when it is a serial acquire type of model. So um, I would say those are the bigger like surface level uh, red flags that I look for. And uh, I'm always trying to kill something fast so I can work on something else of value. I hear you. So, I mean, how big is the universe of potential ideas? Do you actually, is, are there available to you based on your criteria that gets thrown in the junk and then, you know, the things that are getting interesting and then follow up to that is what are some of the catalysts that you look for that then pique your interest to look a little bit further? Yeah. So in the serial acquire space, uh, there's around 300 right now that I track actively and, and, just so we're clear, you know, it's not that I'm exclusively focused on serial acquires, just like not exclusively on um, small companies. Like I want good companies. Um, it's just a lot of times I find, find that I want smaller companies and serial acquires. And then you know, a lot of those, yeah, that's what we thought. I got you. So the serial acquire space specifically, there's about 300 that I track. Most of those not interested in. Um, sometimes they'll be too big. Um, sometimes they're just... Again, that wheelhouse of my understanding, I can't really wrap my mind around it. So, um, you know, when you whittle those down, you get to a, a nice list of, uh, I'd say about 50 that I'm, I'm really constantly following um, and whatnot. And then from there, uh, there's a handful where uh, they, they definitely have the components of what I look for, but the risk dynamics of where the business model is, um, 
it's, it's not at kind of that sweet spot where I like to swing. So I think it will be potentially, you know, five, 10 years. So I'll follow the company um, and I'll look for those inflection points that I usually look for uh, within, within serial acquirers. But I really want something um, within the business model to develop more uh, prior to taking a swing just to, to hedge against that risk component. Um, and, you know, obviously that's going to usually, you're, you're giving up a little bit of return, but on that, that risk curve, I just like a little bit more certainty in what's unfolding in terms of their model. Very good. So then, you know, we're getting a little towards the end here today. So, you know, for new investors that I know we're focused specifically on serial acquirers, but as you can probably imagine, that's what's going to be the title here. And, it, and it's really fascinating because, you know, we've gone, I, I've done a few episodes on, you know, yeah. roll up strategies and, but nothing really, even on some of the other ideas, you know, on, on conglomerates yeah. and, and some of the others. Yeah. You know, so for, for those that are new to looking at serial acquirers, what's yeah. some advice that you would give them? Oh man. Um, well, you know, I think uh, the big thing is like study, study those, those case studies that are uh, successful. Um, one of the things I really admire about Mark Leonard is that uh, internally Constellation Software, they would, they would adamantly study, they called them high performing conglomerates. I think HPC, I forget, I forget the, it, I think it was high performing conglomerates, but they would dissect these successful businesses that had acquisition models um, to really understand how, you know, how they worked and what they could, they could uh, imitate at, at Constellation Software. So I think for investors who are um, curious in serial acquirers, there's, there's two things, you know, study, study the successful ones, and then also study them in their early days when they are smaller companies. Um, and there are, there's, you know, there's a lot of serial acquirers that are smaller in size that you consider small, um, even micro cap, uh, that you can look at, and they're easier to analyze than these giant conglomerates um, that have so many moving parts. You're just going to get turned turned around three times over um, before you, you really wrap your mind around what's going. So, um, yeah, I think that would be my my two uh, two recommendations there. I love it, man. All right. Well, with that, you know, where can our audience go and find more information about you, MCJ Capital Partners, as well as follow you on social media? Yeah. Uh, our website, it's a great spot, mcjcapitalpartners.com. You can sign up for our uh, memo and quarterly updates, things of that nature. And then I am out there on the Twitter machine. So Carter Johnson, 23, because uh, first 22 were already taken, I guess, but uh, <laughs> you're an, um, you're a Michael Jordan fan. I mean, there you go. Yeah. Or so, LeBron. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just like studying grades. So it's a lot of fun. It's cool. I guess 20, 23 yeah. is like becoming the 10 in soccer. You know, it's the best player where it's 23 in basketball. You know, it is yeah. Um, yeah. There you go. Well, well, Carter, thank you so much for joining me today, man. This was hey, so much fun. Congrats. Well, early congrats, you know, yeah. Yeah. go great. Uh, with, with, uh, it, it, we were talking offline, you're, you're expecting the, you know, the birth of your upcoming child, your first, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. My wife and I are expecting our first year soon. So I'm glad we got this, uh, this interview in and yeah. it was a ton of fun. It was a ton of fun. So, um, same. Yeah, yeah absolutely, dude. Well, thanks again. And, uh, look forward to the next one. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Bobby. Take care. Take care.
This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Podcast.